Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 18 through 26. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So good morning, King's Cross. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't already, go ahead and uh, grab your Bible and turn to John chapter 17. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, John 17. Now, I know I said that we would start a new series today. Well, I lied about that, so please forgive me. Um, we'll, actually, we'll actually do that next week. Uh, this morning, I wanted to walk us through these biblical concepts of prayer and mission. Uh, these concepts of prayer and mission, and really the relationship between the two. Um, like, how should we pray, and how does that relate to uh, our mission as a church, our mission in the world? And so to do that, we're going to unpack one of the most sobering and passionate prayers in, in all of Scripture, uh, in, in John 17. Um, it's, it's one of my uh, favorite prayers in all of Scripture to read. Uh, to meditate on, to consider, uh, and especially if you remember last week, we said we're going to have a joint prayer meeting uh, with Stone Creek Church, with the church uh, that's, that hosts us um, here on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're going to have a joint prayer uh, and worship night with them on Tuesday night. And so uh, I thought it'd be fun to talk about prayer and our common mission. Um, so if you're looking at John 17, you'll know that this is the last recorded prayer of Jesus. John 17 is the last recorded prayer of Jesus. He was, Jesus was approaching the end of his life when he prayed this prayer. He was approaching the end of his life. He was about to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, and ultimately taken to the cross where he would be murdered, crucified, and put to death for our sins. And he's Jesus, so he knows what, that that's in store, right? Like, he knows that he's about to die. And look, even though he knows that he's about to die and he knows that a resurrection is going to follow, that he would rise from the grave in triumphant victory, even though he knows that that hope is on the other end of this, he still knows that he's going to have to go through hell, He's going to have to go to, to walk through the shadows to experience the most brutal death to get there, to get to the hope of the resurrection. 
And so knowing that this brutality is in store for him at this moment in John 17, the whole reason that he came, right? This is the whole reason that he came was to die for the sins of his people. This very moment, at the, at this, the moment that was the whole reason he came, the mission that he was sent for, to suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Like that was his mission. And knowing that this was before him, knowing that death was before him, that the cross was before him, and that, and that suffering and that death was right around the corner for him, Knowing that, he, he utters this prayer. And so, like, consider this morning, like, if you knew that you were about to die, if you knew that you were about to die, especially in this way, in the most brutal way, like, what would you do? What would you be thinking? And if you were going to pray, like, how would you pray? What Jesus chose to do in his last hours, one of the things he chose to do is to, is to pray. That's what he did in John 17, and what he prayed for, as we're looking at it, is extremely significant. You see that through this prayer in John 17, through this prayer, we actually get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. And in these last nine verses of John 17, we see his passion, not only for the mission that he came to do, but for the mission that he actually sends us on as his followers. You guys know what a mission is? Mission is basically like a primary assignment, right? It's a primary assignment. It's almost like the singular cause for which you live for, right? How many of you guys have seen the Mission Impossible movies, right? Or like the TV shows um, from like back in the day. Like in, in, in Mission Impossible, they've got that line at the beginning of the movie where, you know, e or, you know Ethan Hunt, he gets this message and it always starts the same way, right? Your mission, should you choose to accept it, and then you're just like, this impossible mission, that's why it's called Mission Impossible, right? Like, your mission, should you choose to accept it, and then he tells them this impossible mission, and then at the end it says, you know, this message will self-destruct in, in five seconds. And what happens is, at that point, when Ethan Hunt chooses to accept the mission, like, that's it. There's no going back. That mission becomes the single driving force for the rest of the movie, Right? He accepted the mission, this is what he's on, and nothing else matters for the rest of the movie. You see, when Jesus, the eternal son, left his throne in heaven to take on flesh, being born in a manger, he had a singular mission that he was sent for. He had a singular purpose for which his life exists. His mission was to live a perfect human life that we could never live, to die on a cross in our place, a death that we deserve, and to rise from the grave in order to save sinners like you and me and to restore us back to God. That is the mission for which Jesus came. That's the whole point of his life. That's the whole point of Jesus, God in the flesh. And in this passage... In this passage, Jesus prays for his mission. He prays for his mission, and he also prays for ours. In verse 17, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So, so the mission that he was sent on is tied to the mission that we are sent on as well. And the big idea is that you know Jesus is on a mission, on a singular purpose, to spread the good news of the gospel of grace 
to adopt people into God's family, and we have the privilege of joining in that mission. That's the big idea. Jesus is on a mission to spread the gospel of grace, adopt people into his family, and we have the privilege now of joining him in that mission. And so how do we join in that mission? That's our question. How do we join in that mission? And in the verses uh, of John 17 that we're looking at this morning, we see Jesus praying two things for his church, two things for his church related to this mission. And that's that one, they would be united. And secondly, that they would multiply, that they would make disciples. Let's look at that first point. Jesus prays for our unity. He prays that we would be united. That's in verses 20 to 23. Notice I said he prays for our unity. I didn't say he prayed for their unity, right? Like he's, Jesus is praying this prayer. He's praying for his disciples. But I didn't say he's praying for their unity. I said he's praying for our unity. You see, and that's because if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then this prayer that he uttered, this prayer for unity is also for you. It's also for us. This prayer in John 17 is for you. And the reason that we know that is because when you look at verse 20, he says this. Jesus says, he's praying to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only. In other words, he's saying, I'm not just praying for these disciples around me. I'm not just praying for my friends, for my comrades here. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So those who will believe in me through their word, you know who Jesus is talking about there? He's talking about all Christians. All Christians who through, through faith in him will be adopted into his family. He's not just talking about the disciples in front of them. He's talking about all Christians throughout redemptive history, throughout human history. That includes the billions of people who would come to worship him and come to follow him throughout the centuries. Even today, Jesus was praying for this church as well. He was praying for all who would believe. Not just all who believed in his time, but all who would believe. That means King's Cross Church in 2017. That means everyone around the world this morning that's sitting in a pew or a chair in a chapel in a home or in a room like this, everyone who gathers in a community and on the Lord's Day because they know this Jesus, because they love him and they worship him as God. And so if that describes you this morning, if you believe in Jesus through the word of the gospel, then this prayer, this prayer was for you. And so I ask you, like, if, 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 if I ask you, like, where in the Bible does Jesus pray for you? Like, you could, you could point to this passage right here. So again, what is it that he prays for? Remember, our first point is he prays for our unity. He prays that his church would be unified. Read verse 20 again with me, and then on through verse 23. Verse 20, he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So you get, you get this sense in these few verses that Jesus wants us to be one, right? He wants us to be unified. He prays to the Father that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. <coughs> and again, verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. So what does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus wants to not only restore our relationship with God, with a holy God, he also wants to restore our relationship with one another. He wants us to be unified. He wants us to be family. He wants the kind of unity in the church that is shaped by the Trinity. He says, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, I want them to be unified. He wants the kind of unity in the church that's shaped by the Trinity, by our triune God. And here's what I mean. When our triune God created mankind, he said, let us make man in our image. He said, let us make man in our image. One God said, let us make man in our image. And that's because he wanted mankind to be in the image of a triune God. In other words, mankind as a whole would reflect the unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when sin entered into the world, that got broken, right? When sin entered into the world, it fractured not only our relationship with God, but with each other. So now at any given moment, we will naturally choose to betray each other. We'll naturally choose to betray God or one another or to judge one another. And the cross of Jesus not only reconciles us back to God, but to each other as well. And so the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave to adopt us into God's family... That gospel gives us new hearts. It gives us new minds, and it also creates for us a new community, a new family. The gospel unifies us in Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about uniformity, right? There's a difference between uniformity and, and unity. I'm not talking about uniformity. I'm talking about unity, and it's important to notice that there's a difference here. Jesus is praying for the unity, not the uniformity, of his followers. In the same way that Jesus, God the Son, is distinct from God the Father, we are distinct from one another, but united in Christ, right? Jesus, God the Son, is distinct from God the Father, but united in the Godhead. We are distinct from one another, but united in Christ, united in our adoption. You see, we talked about this a little bit last week, but you know, this room alone, we know that we have people of all kinds of different stripes and backgrounds here, right? I mean, just look around. We have different colors, different ages, different generations, different vocations, different social upbringings, ethnic backgrounds, different wiring skills and gifts that we all bring to the table. Like we are distinct from one another. We're distinct from one another for sure, but if you're a follower of Jesus, then we also have this unbreakable unity that comes with being brothers and sisters in God's family. We have unity in our diversity. 
I mean, you just read the headlines, right? Like, just look at the world around us. Like, humanity, apart from God's grace, has always used diversity as a means for animosity. But in Christ, you have diversity with unity in tandem with one another. You see, although every follower of Jesus has a personal relationship with God, like all of us as individuals have a personal relationship with God, like that relationship shouldn't isolate us from God's family. Jesus restores us to a relationship with God, but also adopts us into God's family. And so the church isn't just this place that we go to, isn't just this, this club or, or clique, like it's, it's actually a family that we belong to. And see, the, the church is the most beautiful community that there is. It's the type of community that we all long for because it's the type of community that we're made for, where we complement one another, where we're called to one another, where Jesus is our center, his message is a foundation that we stand on. The gospel is the, is the thing that tethers us so that we're united in him. And see, here at King's Cross Church, like we long for that community. We long for that unity. So we're going to work for that unity. And it's, and it's hard work. It's hard work for sure because our tendency is to want to be like isolated and individualistic. But it's hard work, but it's worth it. It's worth it. You see, Jesus died not just to call us back to God, but to, to invite us as a family together in him. And so it's worth it to work towards that and to grow in that. Now, we, don't need, now we not only need to have unity with, within our church, but we, we also need to stand in unity with, with other churches, right? Like, like years ago, I, I ran this, 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 this blog called The Gospel for OC, um, some of you might like might remember from back in the day when we had this 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 blog called the Gospel for OC, where where me and a few of my friends we would write these articles, basically dreaming about what would a new gospel-centered revival look like if it broke out in our Orange County context. What would it look like if this new gospel-centered revival broke out in Orange County? Like if unbelievers got saved because of it, if Christians were actually living transformed lives daily. And and the fame of Jesus' name just spread because of it. And when we had this, this website, this blog, this, this, this one pastor emailed me and said, like, hey, how can we be a part of this ministry? And, and my response was always like, what ministry, right? Like, this isn't a ministry. It's just a blog. Like, he thought there was, like, an actual organization behind us. But then, like, a week later, I'd get, a, I'd get an email from another pastor that was saying, hey, how do we support your ministry? How do we get involved? And then a week later, like, this deacon from another church would send me an email and say, hey, I'm on staff at this church. Like, we want to know how we can get involved. And it happened enough times to where, to where we said, like, hey, these guys, like, care about the same things, gospel-centeredness, and they're, like, just down their, their churches are just a few miles down the road from each other, and they don't even know that they exist, right? Like, like let's get these guys in the same room. And so, and so, I, and so I started, uh, I, I planned this lunch for all of us to get together, to, to pray and to enjoy a meal together. And they were like, we love this. Like, can we do this again? And so we did it again two months 
later. And, 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 and we, it was just this fascinating thing. We started off with like four churches and we grew to like 17 churches. But we just saw this picture of this fact that like, man, God's people are drawn together. They're drawn together across, um, across denominational lines just to pray and to collaborate towards a singular mission towards a singular purpose, and that's the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. People were yearning for that kind of unity. And see, we see this at play throughout the New Testament too, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and, and Romans and these other places. Paul's writing to these churches, and what we see is that these churches are united in prayer and in resources to support the struggling church in Jerusalem. And so they're they're, they're gathering resources to help them out. They're gathering to pray. They have this, this sense, this mentality that like, hey, we're different churches, but we're on the same team. We have the same mission. You see, one of the ways that that fleshes itself out today, like with us, is with our partnerships with networks like the Pacific Church Network, like the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. I mean, these are two networks that have gotten behind us, right, to train us, to support us, to give us this camaraderie that we have with them around these core gospel truths and this shared commitment to make disciples and to plant healthy churches. We also see this fleshed out in our partnership with Village Church in Irvine, right, like our sending church, uh, and also with Stone Creek, the church that's hosting us here right now, right? Like, I mean, we, we've, been, we've been talking a lot and posturing ourselves and asking for prayer, you know, every single week for our next location, right? And if you were here last week, you know that we're getting really close to, to, to moving into and, and securing, like, our, our next location down the road here. But I want us to recognize that, like, as, as awkward and unconventional, like, this, this room has been for us at times with, like, drums coming from one end and like deadlifts from the other, right? That, um, that, that man, this, this church has been really kind to us to, to let us use this space. They've been so hospitable and generous to us, always asking every single week, hey, is there anything we can do to make your, your stay more, more comfortable, you know? Um, you'll see this kind of unity also worked out on Tuesday night. At 6.30, in, in this church building where both of our churches um, gather together to, to pray for each other, to pray for our community, to pray for our common mission. Um, it's going to be a beautiful night. Like I, I hope we'll, we'll see many of you guys there as we gather to call upon God in one united voice to pray for our churches and pray for our community. You see, at, at, at King's Cross, like, we're not trying to build some, like, church empire or brand or platform. Like, we're here to spread the fame of Jesus' name. Like, that's the reason that we exist. We're not here because of, like, a personality or a platform or some brand or, 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 or you know, like, institution or empire we're trying to build. Like, we're here for Jesus. And that's always going to be the case for us. Right? And like, sure, we'll have like our, our, own, our own distinctives or have our own philosophy of ministry. We'll have our own people that God specifically called to our little local church family. But by and large, we're all here. Um, every church, every Bible preaching, like Jesus-exalting church exists to spread his fame. 
And so that's why, like, the first thing that Jesus prays for is for our unity. It's for our unity that there would be a oneness in our mission and vision for that. The second thing that he prays for, number two, he prays for the church's multiplication. He prays for multiplication. He prays that disciples would multiply, that churches would multiply. You see, the unity of God's people serves a purpose. It serves a mission, and we see that in verses 22 to 24. Read it with me. It says, the glory, Jesus is praying still. He says, the glory, Father, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so what we see is that right there in verse 24, Jesus is praying for he, those the Father has given him. He's praying for those the Father has given him. Now, who is he talking about when he says those the Father has given me? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the elect. He's talking about the church throughout the ages. Everyone who would come to know Jesus, to love him and follow him and worship him as God. He's praying for the church in his day to multiply so that more and more people will come to get to see and know and experience the glory and the hope that is only found in him. And so in this prayer, we see that Jesus wants to church to multiply. He wants them to grow. And we see that there are two ways that the church multiplies from this, these few verses. First, the church multiplies by displaying the glory of God, by displaying the glory of God through the gospel. We see that Jesus wants to shine his glory through the church to a dark world. And see, this happens Jesus shines his glory through the church to a dark world. That happens when the glory of the Father and the Son is just so embedded in and part of our lives. Verse 22 says, Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory you have given me, Father, I have given to them, to my disciples. I've given to the church, then they may be one even as we are one. And that glory comes from this in verse 23. I in them and you, Father, in me. In other words, we display Christ's glory. We display his glory by living out this idea of Jesus in us. We display his glory by living out the union that we have in Christ. We display his glory by living out the fact that Jesus is in us. And so in other words, we display his glory by living grace-transformed lives. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus this morning, that means that your life has been transformed by the grace of Jesus. Like, 
Could someone describe, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, could someone describe your life that way? Where they, they look at your life they, through, through, from the time you were born up until now, and they, and they say, like, man, the grace of God has transformed this person's life. Like, are you living out a transformed life? You're not displaying the glory of Jesus if your life is not transformed. You're not. If you're still holding bitterness against others or treating others like trash, or if you're still finding satisfaction in your social status or in sex or in how much stuff you have or money you have rather than in Christ, if you're still holding on to those things, if you're still finding your identity, your values, your satisfaction in those things rather than in Christ, then you're not living out a transformed life in Christ. So the church displays his glory. Secondly, the church also declares the glory of Jesus. Declares his glory. We see that our mission is basically to tell other people about Jesus' mission. Our mission isn't about us. It's not even about this church. Our mission is about Jesus. It's because of Jesus, and it's driven by Jesus. See, our mission is to tell other people about Jesus' mission. Our mission is to tell people why Jesus was sent, what he has done. We see that in verse 21. We see that in verse 21, the reason that we need to have unity and prayer is because it's part of the way that we declare the glory of Jesus to everyone else. Like, that's the end goal. Verse 21 says, he, he's praying he's for this unity, and he says that, that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, that's the goal. That the world may believe that you, Father, have sent me. In other words, our mission is to get others, is to get the world to believe that Jesus was sent, that he was sent. And what was Jesus' mission that he was sent on? It was to reconcile sinners to God and reconcile them into God's family. And so our mission now is to tell people this great news, is to tell people that news, the reason he came, that Jesus gave his church, his people, one mission, and that was to make disciples. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. We call it the Great Commission. He says, all authority, he's speaking to his disciples, right? He's coming to the end of his life, and Jesus is commissioning his disciples, and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go now and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And see, that is what Jesus is praying for in John 17. That through the church's unity, through its witness, and through its words, that more and more disciples would be made. That they would live this out, that they would live out the Great Commission. You see, it's this realization that Christianity is about being more, more than, just, uh, than, than being just formed into God's family. Christianity is about being more than formed into God's family. It's also about how the fact that we're made for a mission. We're made for Christ's mission. Christianity is about more than being formed into God's family. It's also about that we were made for God's mission. And so together, we try to get others to believe in Jesus' mission. 
Together, we try to, 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 to help people see that, that he wasn't just born to be a great example or a great teacher, but that he was sent to be a great savior and redeemer. He's the one that transforms lives. He renews peoples and communities. And he came to restore to earth, the, the entire earth, the cosmos to its original beauty that it fell from. You see, at King's Cross, we want to be the kind of church that has a heart for the world around us, for the people that aren't here. You see, before you came to church, if you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're a follower of him, of him like before you came, ever came to church, whether it was this church or another one, someone had a heart to reach out to you. For some of us, it was maybe it was a, our parents, like the, the home we grew up in. For others, it was a neighbor or a coworker or another family member. Someone had a heart for you. They were praying for you, and they invited you to hear the word of God. They invited you to come and hear so that you could believe. They were joining Jesus on his mission. And you see, sometimes the church, the church at large, sometimes, like local churches, we, we, we drift from this mission. Remember, we talked about that in the last chapter of Nehemiah. Sometimes the church drifts from this mission. They say that an older church gets, the more, the more insular, the more inward-facing and inward-oriented it can get, where it becomes more like, hey, it's all about us and it's not about, about them, right? But let's, let's be a church that's, that's like Jesus, praying and laboring towards gospel multiplication towards making disciples and welcoming anyone, welcoming anyone and everyone that Jesus would bring us. So what does it look like to be on mission? What does it look like to be on mission? In all of this, Jesus serves as our primary example of what it looks like to, be, to live a life on mission. We see that actually at the beginning of our passage in verse 18. If you remember, he said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He's praying to the Father, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so simply, like a way that we could put it is that a life on mission is a life that is sent a life on mission is a life that is sent. And so if you want this framework for what it looks like for your life to be on mission, then you look at the incarnation, at the incarnation in the life of Jesus himself. He was sent. God became man. He left his throne. He entered into our world. He took on flesh. He loved people. God, the creator, the maker, John tells us that all things were created through him. All things were created through him and by him. The creator entered into our world, took on the same flesh that we wear. And he loved people. He spent time with them and he shared his life with them. 
We see his hands were open to outcasts. We see that his grace was offered to prostitutes and to adulterers and to tax collectors. We see that Jesus, the servant king, moved with compassion because he sees the people around him and he says in Matthew 9, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He says he came to seek and save that which is lost. And he doesn't seek people who are lost so they can continue in their lostness. He seeks the people who are lost so that they can be found, so that they can be transformed, so that they can be restored to their God and their maker, so they can be adopted into God's family. You see, a church on mission, a missional church sees that people and that culture are not enemies of the church but are broken treasures that God is restoring and renewing through the transforming power of the gospel. We can't miss that. A missional church sees that people and culture are not enemies of the church, but broken treasures that God is restoring through the transforming power of the gospel. You see, that is the uniqueness of Christianity. No other religion teaches that. That is the uniqueness of Christianity, of the mission that Jesus came for. Tim Keller points this out in one of his books. He says, you know, that he points out, I'm going to paraphrase him. Um, He says that, you know, Christianity, like, isn't about... um, like escaping the world, right? It's not about, it's not, the, our, our mission is not to escape the world because it's so bad and hard, right? And so this world is so bad and hard and like, let's just get through it and move on to like a better place, right? That's how some people oversimplify Christianity, but that's not what it's about. Most religions teach that. Most religions teach that our, our mission, our purpose is to escape the world because this is bad, this is hard, this is me- messy, Right? And so we want to move on to better things. Uh, others outside of religion, like secularists, um, they, they t- tend to, to almost like naively think that we can fix the world ourselves, right? That's what secularism usually teaches, that if we're just smart enough, if we collaborate enough, if we, if we evolve enough, if we, um, if we, if we grow together, if we, if we do that, then, then we can f- fix our way out of this situation, We can fix our way out of the brokenness. But the scriptures give us a fuller picture. The scriptures give us a more beautiful picture. It's the beauty of the gospel that says, look, we can't fix the world ourselves because it's cosmically broken. We're psychologically broken. We're emotionally broken. We're spiritually broken. Death, disasters, decay, that's all a part of the universe that we live in because of sin's stain on the world. You can't, we can't work it away, right? But at the same time, God doesn't want us, doesn't try to save us out of the world, right? He doesn't just look at, to look at his people and say, things are so messed up, so I'm just going to take you out of the world. No, no, God is not going to help us abandon our broken our world. In fact, God himself is not going to abandon our broken world. He's not just going to save us from it. He's going to renew it. He's going to restore it. He's going to reestablish his kingdom. God doesn't look at the brokenness and the messiness and say, 
man, let's get out of here, right? He looks at it and he says, I'm going to make this new. I'm going to make beauty come from the ashes. I'm going to make what's old and decaying look new and beautiful. I'm going to restore this. I'm going to reestablish my kingdom. That's why Jesus said when he was started his ministry, he was going around from town to town, the main message that he started with was repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Something new is happening in human history. Something new is happening in redemptive history. He was sent. Jesus was sent. And so if we're followers of Jesus, we recognize that we are sent people. To be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is to follow him in his sentness. Does that make sense? And so here in Jesus' prayer, he's saying, look, I was a sent to accomplish God's mission to renew and restore the world, to grow God's family on it, and I invite you in to join. That's what he's saying to us through this, this prayer. How many of you guys have heard, uh, you know, Charles Spurgeon, right? The, they call him the Prince of Preachers. I think I may have told this story once in our Nehemiah series. Uh, but the Prince of Preachers, he, he was the, the pastor in the late 1800s, early 1900s of a metropolitan uh, tab- tabernacle. this Reformed Baptist church in, uh, in the heart of London. And a uh, little backstory on London at the time is in the late 1700s, by 1850, the effects of the Industrial Revolution in that area like was pervaded London, right? And the city was in meltdown mode. There were needs everywhere, and none of them were being met. Homeless people, like people were, were dying early. Men were dying early because of being overworked in the factories. They were flocking to London because of the Industrial Revolution. And, and a lot of them, some of them found jobs, many of them didn't. And so homelessness increased. The number of widows increased. Uh, poverty and crime increased. And you know what the churches in London did at the time? The churches in London, they took off. They looked at the mess and they said, you know, this is too broken. This is too messy. We're out of here. And so most of them retreated out to the suburbs and to the rural areas. They just took off. Except for Metropolitan Tabernacle. Except for Spurgeon's church. They resolved and said, look, we're going to stay. We're going to stay because we see an opportunity here for the gospel. We, want, we have the message of the kingdom, and we're, we're sent into darkness. Jesus was sent into darkness and brokenness, and we're gonna, we're, that's the posture we're going to take on, that we were sent to the heart of London for a reason in our time under God's sovereign plan. And this church, by the grace of God, like, was used by God to, to create massive like, reform and revival broke out. Today we call Spurgeon the prince of preachers because the pulpit ministry from this church um, was so pervasive, it just impacted the city for generations to come. You see, a true church has a missionary posture, a sent posture. And the same is true for every Christian. And it doesn't mean that like 
Some of you are here and you're like, man, I don't really, like, evangelism is not my gift. And, like, that's fine, right? I'm not saying that everyone is meant to be an evangelist, but everyone, in some sense, is meant to be a disciple maker, right? By praying for people, by displaying a transformed life, a life transformed by the gospel, by having a reason for the hope that we have in us. Charles Spurgeon, that prince of preachers, he's got this one quote that I just love. He says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. You see, God didn't place our church here in Rancho Santa Margarita. He didn't place our church here in South Orange County just so that we could minister to Christians, but to the world. So we could minister to the world, so we could do good to everyone, so that more people might come to know Jesus and worship him as God. You see, we're not here just to know Jesus as Christians, but to make him known. We're not here just to know Jesus, but make him known. And how do we know that? Because Jesus makes a promise here in his prayer. He said, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. I made known to them your name. He's praying to the Father. God, I made known to them your name, and I will continue throughout history to make this name known. And elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus says, I will build my church. That's his promise. And we know Jesus is good on his promises. We know he's good on his promises because over 2,000 years later, over two millennial year, millennia later, after he prayed that prayer in the back in, in, uh, with his disciples, when he prayed that prayer, here we are 2,000 years later in the back room of a church in RSM, California, <laughs> singing songs about Jesus, uniting in him, proclaiming him, making disciples and planting churches. You see, the Son of God never prayed in a way that was contrary to God's will. It was impossible for him, right? He knew the perfect will of God. Yet he, and he, this is how he prays. And so, Jesus never prayed in a way that was contrary to God's will. And so we pray for the mission now, just like he did. We pray for a unified church like he did. We pray for a multiplying church like he did. Why does the Son of God pray? Why does Jesus pray? It's because he knows that God loves to work through prayer. He loves to work through prayer. You see, God could grow trees out of nothing, but the normative way is through seed, through water, through sunlight right? Like, that doesn't make photosynthesis any less brilliant, any less magical or miraculous, any less a work of a sovereign God. And so in the same way, God can multiply churches. He can multiply disciples out of nowhere. But the normative way is through the word preached, the church gathered and unified, and prayers lifted up in Jesus' name. And we see in Scripture and confirmed throughout history that the most intense and insane revivals that have broken out have taken, and that have taken place throughout church history, they always started with a movement of prayer. 
And doesn't that just show like the loving like dadness of God, right? Doesn't that just show the loving fatherliness of God? The fact that God could do whatever he wants apart from us, and he often does. But he chooses, because he's a good and perfect father, he chooses to hear our prayers and work through them. He's a good father. Some of us in this room, we grew up either with no father or with bad fathers. Some of us grew up with great fathers, right? But in, in, in all of this, like if you had a, a, if, if you had a, a, like a, a bad father and, and, that, and you were wounded by that, like, like that's something in God's common grace that, that he gives you that, that gives us the sense that, that no fathers are meant to be something, something better, right? And some of us grew up with great fathers. And the reason that we know that is because there's something built into us to, to know what a good father is like. And see, God is that perfect father. He's a perfect standard of fatherliness. And he chooses as our good and perfect father to hear our prayers, to have his children speak to him. The creator chooses to lend his ear to his creatures, to hear our prayers and to work through them. You see, that proves that Christianity isn't about a list of do's and don'ts, which is what we often mistake it for, but it's about a restored relationship with the Almighty. And so if you want to boil it, boil it down. Like the church exists for one reason. Again, it's to make the name of Jesus great. It's already a great name, but we want to spread the knowledge of that greatness. You see, that's all that we care about. That's all that we pray for. And so as a church, like, like is, is that something that, that, that you pray for? Let's be a church like that. Let's be a church that prays like Jesus for unity, that prays like Jesus for our multiplication, that prays for fruitfulness in ministry. We have the privilege of participating in God's sovereign work, and so let's join him in his great mission and by his great power and pray for this. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening. 